Luke chapter 7 is where we're going to uh, study in the Word of God this morning. You know, we sang a song this morning, one of the old hymns called Jesus, What a Friend for Sinners, Jesus, Lover of My Soul. Friends may fail me, foes assails me, assail me, He, my Savior, makes me whole. Jesus, what a help in sorrow while the billows o'er me roll, even when my heart is breaking. He, my comfort, helps my soul. I think one of the ways that I would describe Jesus is that Jesus was a friend of sinners. That's interesting. What, interestingly what they accused him of being. Think about that. They accused him of being a friend of sinners. And that was supposed to be an insult. Think about that. That was meant to discredit him. To kind of dislodge him from the position of a rabbi. For certainly a respected religious man would not want to be known as the friend of sinners. But that was clearly the pursuit of the life of Christ. Unmistakably. Can I ask you this question this morning? Could you be accused of being a welcoming, non-prejudiced, non-discriminating person? I don't mean what do you think of yourself when you look in the mirror either. Because we all have wonderful views of ourselves, right? There are times I actually think I'm handsome. (laughs) I mean, that's scary, right? I'm not asking you what other people think about you. I'm asking you what the truth is. Your reputation. It's not what you tell people about yourself. Your reputation is what people conclude by looking at your life. We live in a culture that sees an inclusion, a mindset of accepting everyone, sees inclusion, as a respectable way to live your life. We live in a culture of people that want to be seen as non-judgmental. A world where you can hold to opposing views of things and both be right. Taking a real estate class. And last week I went over to my teacher, because a number of times during the class he talked about how he's very pluralistic and open-minded. He's a 72-year-old man. He's trying to kind of let us know that he's, he's really not a judgmental person. So I went up to him after class last week because he had marked one of the questions on the test that I took wrong. And I told him I took offense to that. Uh, I said, it's a math problem. And we just have different conclusions. All right? <laughs> kind of paused, looked at me, and he said, I think I understand what you're saying. He knows I'm a pastor because we had this conversation early on. I said, I, just, you know, I gave you this story quick. A man named Frank Robinson used to spell groceries door-to-door in my hometown. Okay? Town of North Wales. I started talking to my teacher who's 72 years old. He said, oh, I said, I lived in Lansdale area. And I said, yeah, area, be specific. He said, North Wales. I said, I lived in North Wales. He said, what street? So I lived on 2nd Street in North Wales. I said, well, I said, what street did you live on? He said, 6th Street. I said, then I want to ask you a question. Did you know a man named Frank Robinson? Kind of like, yeah. He said, isn't he the guy that sold groceries door to door? I said, yeah. But I said, here's why that matters to me. Now, I, 
I know my teacher is not a professing Christian, okay? From a number of, for a number of reasons in the class, okay? Just, I, I can tell there's not a love for Jesus because Jesus is an adjective, okay? I said, Frank Robinson is the man who in the process of selling groceries door to door shared Jesus with my mom and with my dad and led my entire family to Christ. Some reason he didn't pick up on that and want to talk about it. <laughs> but I was trying to impress upon him that this man had shared with us truth that we needed to know that would change our lives. That altered the trajectory of my life out of my family's life. Because the man selling groceries door to door was a friend to sinners. He wasn't selective. This man, my teacher, knew him very well. And he said, oh, he was one of the friendliest guys on the planet. And was, my question was, do you know why? He knew Jesus, and he wanted you to know about Jesus more than he wanted to be successful in his business. And that was what he would share, door-to-door, selling groceries, a friend of sinners. I, I have no problem saying that Frank Robinson has a reputation. He's gone to be with the Lord, enjoying his reward. But he left a reputation. He loved people of all kinds. That was his reputation. So the question I have for us this morning is, what is our reputation as a church? What is our reputation as individuals in our community? Not what do we think about ourselves, but what is true about us? What kind of people do you pursue a relationship with? Do you and I pursue people of all kinds, irregardless of religious background, irregardless of moral status? Irregardless of social status. Are we in this sense like Jesus? And I challenge you to do this. And I challenge myself. Think about your friendships. Think about the people you seek to gain a relationship with. Not the ones that are attracted to you. But the ones that you pursue. Does your pursuit look like the pursuit of Jesus? The friend of sinners. Can I probe a little deeper? In the world that you and I live in, is Christianity pursued, perceived as an inclusive, accepting body of people in America, or is it perceived as an exclusive, prejudiced body of people in America? Inclusive, accepting, exclusive, prejudice. What would you say? Can you say it out loud? The latter, right? That's sad, but true. Now, I understand we get a lot of help from the media that tends to paint Christianity in a really favorable light, right? Well, what they tend to do is pick extremes and try to paint the whole group as the worst. And so we have an uphill battle to fight. You know what that means? It means we really need to turn on the heart of Christ. It means we really need to be people who... Seek actively and intentionally and intelligently relationships with people for the sake of the gospel so that we would be people who rescue the reputation of Christianity from being exclusive and judgmental and critical to being inclusive and loving and accepting of people of all kinds. Because that's what our Savior did. And I pushed the question further and asked this to myself as a church family. How would we rate 
And look at what I would say is this. Some people within our church family are unbelievably inclusive. I don't mean compromising. I mean they're inclusive in the sense that they will seek and mix with people of all kinds. You can see it in their life. Are we collectively known as a church that loves people of all kinds? Where if you're wrestling with a a life-controlling problem issue, you can come and find help. There are people that are there that will love you. They will speak the truth to you. But they will love you. And so you push it further into your own life and then say, okay. If I started asking people around me at work, what kind of a person am I? Do you perceive me to be inclusive and accepting or exclusive and judgmental? What's my reputation? You probably have a sense of what your reputation is. My question this morning is, would you be willing to allow the Spirit of God to touch you in this area of relationships and alter how you relate to people of all different kinds? Would you let the Savior set you on the mission that He came to fulfill. He started it. He delivered that mission to others and said, what you saw me do, go and do it. I think Luke chapter 7 is a passage of scripture that we could approach from a number of angles. There's a lot of verses. I'm just going to cover a few different ones as we work our way through it this morning. I want to go through it looking at how Jesus related to people because it really, I think, ultimately leans in that direction. I think it's four stories that in many ways are meant to give us clarity about who Jesus is as the Son of God. And so as you read through it, you're going to find prophetic statements towards John the Baptist, and you're going to find activities of miraculous nature, and you're going to find forgiveness that only God can do at the end. Okay, so you're going to see miracles that demonstrate He can speak and change things, give life. He can speak forgiveness to a woman who has a horrific reputation and change her life in a way that is so profound that it disturbs the religious establishment. And with John the Baptist, he can speak truth into his life and demonstrate by his very actions that he is the Son of God. That's what happens theologically. It's a chapter that shows that Jesus is the Son of the living God. His actions prove that. But it's also a text that shows us Jesus relating to people from all different places and Over and over in the text, you're going to find this issue of reversal. Where the lowly are brought into a place of acceptance. Where an outsider, the leader of an occupying army, is brought into a place of loved acceptance and benefit and help. And where a sinful woman with a horrific reputation, most of us probably know her somewhere in our life, is loved by a Savior who came to seek and to save that which is lost and changed her life. And through the chapter, I, I want us just to focus on it from the perspective of how does Jesus relate to people? And what kind of people does Jesus relate to? So learn this lesson with me. Let's begin reading at the beginning of the chapter. It says, When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening... He entered Capernaum. Now, all this that he was saying is the Sermon on the Plain that Doug had spoken about from chapter 6. Okay, so that ends, and he moves now to Capernaum, which is on, if you're looking at the Sea of Galilee, it's on the north 
east side of the lake, okay? It was basically the beachhead of the ministry of Christ. If you ever had the privilege of going to Israel, it's the one place where you stand where you know Jesus stood here. Okay, everything else they argue over. The synagogue in Capernaum is a known location. And you can literally stand in the place where he stood and taught. It was really the beachhead of his ministry. It was from there that he called Matthew the tax collector. It was from there that he called his disciples who were fishermen around the Sea of Galilee. It was one of the, kind of the, it's, I, I thought, do I call this a port on the Sea of Galilee? It's really not like a port on the ocean. It's more of, I don't know, I guess a beach where they just brought their boats up. But it was a place where fishing activity was done. But it was the center of Jesus' ministry. He entered Capernaum. He had been there many times. He had a reputation that preceded him. That reputation is picked up on by a centurion who is a Roman um, leader in the army, a leader of the occupying army, because Israel was then occupied by Rome because it was conquered by Pompeii in 63 BC. Okay, and then it became an occupied country. And so this centurion is the leader of an occupying army. He had 100 men under him, a man of dignity, Uh, largely and typically men of class and respectability. But he's an outsider, right? I mean, you can't be loved by the Jews typically if you're a leader of the occupying army. But listen to the story. There, a centurion's servant, and here's the twist, whom his master valued highly. If you know anything about slavery in the Roman Empire, you know that slaves were looked at as basically tools. If your tool worn out, what did you do? You discarded it. You just got rid of it. You may care for it, you may not. And he used the word it intentionally. So he had, a, he had a different kind of heart in some sort of way. His servant was sick and about to die, so the situation was dire. And it had captured his heart. The centurion heard of Jesus. So he heard Jesus come back into Capernaum. He didn't just hear the name. He had heard of Jesus. Jesus had a reputation. He could help people. He could change circumstances. And so what did he do? He sent some of the elders of the Jews to Jesus. That's interesting. It means this centurion, Roman Gentile, had a relationship with the Jewish people in his town. He was asking Jesus to come and heal his servant. What does that require? That requires a great deal of faith, doesn't it? To sit knowing your servant is sick, to hear Jesus is back in town, and to think, I have a solution to my problem. I mean, what kind of faith is that? Amazing. When they came to to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly. And Jesus said, he's a Gentile. I don't have anything to do with Gentiles. You know, I'm ad-libbing there, right? Okay, good. Oh, you're all like, yeah, and what happened next? (laughs) Here's what it says. Here's what they said. They said, this man, and what's the next word? What do you, say it out loud. He deserves to have you do this. Think about that for a second. His life merits your favor. Is that the gospel of grace or the gospel of works? Pretty easy to decide, right? Because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So apparently, this centurion, being wealthy and having money, had done what? Made significant enough contributions to the building of the local synagogue that he could be credited with having, making it, having made it possible. Okay, so that's where the story kind of leaves you. So Jesus went with them. 
Doesn't tell us why. He doesn't say he was so impressed with the centurion's lifestyle that he went and helped him. It just says he went with him. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him. Now, the centurion's thinking about the request that he has submitted. He's asked this rabbi Jesus that he's clearly impressed with to come and deliver his servant from a difficult circumstance. He starts thinking about the request and he starts to feel overwhelmingly arrogant. He starts to feel as he's abusing his position. Something like that happens because listen to what it says. He sent more friends to him and he said to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself. For I do not deserve. Okay, here's the twist in the story. I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. This is why I didn't yet even consider myself worthy to come to you. And when the the elders got to Jesus, what they said, well, he deserves your help. What's this man's view? A broken-hearted sinner who is requesting help from a Savior that he is reluctant to approach. Why? Because he's convinced of his sinfulness. But he knows he has the desperate need that only Jesus can fill. Folks, that is the best position you could ever be in in your life. To know that you have a need that is so deep that only Jesus can fill, but you don't deserve to have it filled by Christ. But if you grasp his grace, you'll submit a request that you may even later feel a little bit guilty about asking about because you know who you are. You know you don't deserve the help you receive. This is the gospel. And then he says this. He says, but say the word. And what would the word be? Something like be healed. Just, what kind of faith is that? You know, I, people tell me today, oh, you got to go to this place because this has the anointing of God and this has the blessing of God. If you go here and you go here and all these things are going to happen if you go to these places. And I'm trying to figure out how that settles into this picture. What does this man say? He says, Jesus, if you say the word, no fanfare, no loud volume, just say the word. It'll be done. And then he says this. He says, for I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I am a Roman occupier. I tell this one go and he goes. To that one come and he comes. So what is he saying? He's saying, Jesus, I live in a world where I am kind of master sergeant. And that's kind of the, kind of the equivalency here. I have pretty strong authority. I say go and they go. I say come and they come. I can't operate with you like that. What insight is that? And what is he? Jesus, say the word. It'll be done. And what happens? Verse 9, it says, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. He was taken back. Is that not beautiful? He was taken back and turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. And what is he really saying? Did he not know it was going to happen? Like He knew it was going to happen. He's just saying, this is amazing faith. It's coming from an outsider, though, and that's the problem. Will Jesus demonstrate his authority that he had come to pour out on the nation of Israel as a demonstration of Messiahship? Will he take that outside the inside gang? Will he become an inclusive savior in an exclusive culture? Because when he does, it raises stigma. And you'll see it over and over as you go through the Gospels. When Jesus reaches into the outside crowd, they smack his hand. And say, we don't do it. No, 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 that's, that's not protocol. We don't do that. We don't touch people like that. But Jesus is compelled by the mission for which he came to fulfill, to love all. 
that come. And as Tim said this morning, you come and seek like that, he will answer your prayer. He will answer, even if you come reluctantly, even if you come head down and can't even make eye contact. It's the perfect way to approach Christ. Undeserving, yet needy, coming to the right person who can actually meet your need. Now, in this case, it says, Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. So this servant, who was loved by his master, is healed by the power of Christ. What do we find? Jesus reaching outside of the inside circle of the synagogue to an outside individual to bring him where? Inside. That's the grace of God. It is non-discriminating. It doesn't care about your political, ethnic origin. And that is the heart of Christ. An honorable man who is still a Gentile, who is an outsider that became an insider because of the love of God. That's what Jesus came to do. Second story, verse 11. It says, soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain. How many of you have ever heard the town Nain? I didn't even know it was in the Bible. It's a town near Nazareth, near the hometown of Christ. He goes there. It's a small, backward town. His disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out. And then here comes the, here's the qualifier. So first one's a centurion. He's a, he's, he's a, a, a part of the occupying army. Not a well-liked individual by and large, but in some way unique in his context. Here's a dead man, the only son of his mother, who is a widow. What just happened to her life? In the ancient world. She lost all security. Everything that still made her somebody has been taken away. And folks, it's hard for us to grasp this. Okay, because we live in a culture, I mean, through our tax laws, we care for people. So it's hard for us to understand that in the ancient world, particularly in, in Israel at this time, in, in this Judaistic world that was not biblical in its Judaism and not biblical in the form of Christianity that arises ultimately, there's a brokenness that's present here. And a widow is severely disadvantaged and vulnerable and excluded. Why? Because it was something like this. You got bad luck. Okay, and the idea of aura. Okay, when I'm in India because I'm an American, you know what people do? They snuggle up to me. You know why? They want to be in your aura. And you're like, Vic, I said, Victor, I don't get this. Because like they just want to be close to you. They're, it's that karma thing. In, in the broader Indian culture, they see an American, they want to talk to you, and they, they get clout from that. This woman had the negative karma. I don't like to use that word in a Christian service, but that was her story. It's the truth. She was an outsider. People didn't care for her. Jesus comes into the village with his disciples and a large crowd. And what does he do? His agenda changes because of a need that is present. He focuses his attention on a need that is present. He ministers to someone who is part of the outside to see that they become part of the inside. When the Lord saw her, he went up or out to her and said. Okay, so he sees a need and what does he do? He doesn't brush it off like most of us do in our daily life. He stops. He changes his busy agenda to focus on the need of an outsider. Who's this person in my life? Who's this person 
in your life. He said to her, don't cry. Then he went up and touched the buyer. They were carrying him on, which is like a wicker long basket. They would carry bodies on covered with blankets. And he said, young man, I say to you, get up. Now, that is an amazing thing. Here's what the text says. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Well, I can't explain that to you. Commentaries don't have a lot to say. Why? Because you can't explain miracles. (laughs) You read them and you say, wow. This is the power of Christ. Poured out for the benefit of an outsider so that she would become again an insider. And that her life would be changed. And in a broader way, obviously, this stigmatized woman who is disadvantaged experiences the power of God. Because that's the kind of Savior that you and I serve. Verse 10, it says, they were all filled with awe and praised God and said, a great prophet has appeared among us. God has come to help his people. Do you understand the impact of this miracle? You are indeed the son of God. That's the conclusion they're drawing. They're watching what Christ is doing and coming to conclusions about God himself. Folks, do you understand this? That when we as believers really live the Christian life and really get involved with outsiders and demonstrate to them a love that is supernatural, that it will prove to them that the God that we know and love is real? That's what's happening here. The good news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. Jesus and John the Baptist, verse 18. John's disciples told him about all these things. And he said, okay, what things? The teaching of Christ and the miracles of Christ. And John's where? John's in prison. If you go back to Luke chapter 3, what did John do? John spoke the truth. So folks, here's what I want you to understand. To be an inclusive person, a loving person that reaches out to people of all kinds does not mean that you compromise truth. Okay? Does that make sense? John is in prison because he spoke the truth to Herod. And it cost him his freedom for the rest of his life and ultimately it cost him his life. And folks, here's, here's the tension we live with. If you're a biblical Christian, you are part of the most inclusive, exclusive crowd on earth. And you don't like that. You know what you want? You want inclusion. You want people to see you as fair, as loving, as accepting. And you'd rather set aside the difficult truth. So when people ask you questions about specific issues, do you ever find yourself hesitating? Raise your hand if somebody's ever asked you a hard question and you hesitated. Go ahead, raise your hand. All the rest of you are liars. Okay, people ask you the hard question. You've got to draw the line in the sand. You have to demonstrate that there is truth. There, there are laws of God. There are absolutes. And while I would like to love everyone and should, I also need to have the courage to speak to everyone the truth of God so they can realize what it really means to be on the inside with God. Okay, so John the Baptist flies in the middle of this very inclusive text as a person who spoke the truth and became an outsider while he was profoundly recognized by Jesus as an insider. Do you understand that? 
John was judged by the world in which he lived for speaking the truth. He was proclaimed an outsider, put him in jail. He should not be included in the culture because he spoke the truth. You know why most of us hesitate to speak the truth? We don't want to deal with being an outsider. We don't want to be in the margins of the text of life. We want to be part of the text. We want to matter. Okay? But true inclusion means speaking the truth. And this is where John the Baptist is. Now, if you speak the truth of God's word and you end up experiencing judgment and prison and the loss of freedom for speaking the truth, as you're sitting in prison, what would you start to think? What do you think, Carmel? I should have been quiet, okay. All right, would it raise questions? I mean, you obey God and you get smacked. Does that ever cause you to question? I'm trying to do the right thing. I'm trying to do the right thing financially by helping the kingdom of God. I'm trying to do the right thing by reaching out to people who are struggling. And I'm getting burnt. What do you start to do? You start to wonder about Christ following in cost-counting ways, right? You start to reconsider. Was John capable of that? My response is, you bet. What's John saying? John's saying, look, I understand that I've been put on the outside by the team in charge. But I'm okay with that if you're the Messiah. I'm okay with that. And so he sends some of his disciples to go to Jesus and say, are you the Christ or should we be looking for someone else? Pick up in the text. Verse 21. At that very time, Jesus doesn't give a verbal response. Jesus gives a pictorial response. For John, what is it? Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and he gave sight to many who were blind. Then he replied to the messengers and said, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. This is Isaiah 28, folks. What is he saying? John, remember that text from the Old Testament that you as the forerunner of me proclaimed? Listen to this. Go and report back to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of this. And me. Is that powerful? John, hang in there. It's happening. But what's John want? What did, what did the average Jew think that Jesus was going to bring? They thought he was going to bring the kingdom. And that by now, Herod would be gone. The Herod's not gone. Why? Because Jesus didn't come to create a physical kingdom the first time. He came to bring a spiritual kingdom in which people are set free from the bondage that binds them. To deliver people from darkness. To rescue. To save. To forgive people from overwhelming guilt and sin. That's why he came. So he writes back to John and says, hey, John, Isaiah 28, that is me. That is happening. And his friends go back and John's like, did did you see it? Yeah, he did it right in front of us. We saw it. He is the Messiah. And then this encouragement, John, don't stumble. You have been excluded. When you're excluded, what happens? You start to stumble. You feel rejection. What is Jesus saying to John? You may be rejected by men but you're accepted by me. Here's the way the Apostle Paul put it in Galatians 1 and verse 10. The Apostle Paul said this, am I now trying to please men? 
That's the question he puts out. And here's his conclusion. If I am trying to please men, I cannot be the servant of Christ. Wow. Similar message that John is getting. Hey, John, hang in there. Truth is on your side. After John's messengers left Jesus, he began to speak to the crowd about John. He said, they said to him, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? Did you go out to see a reed swayed by the wind? A fickle, unstable, unsure prophet who really couldn't make up his mind. Well, it's obvious he's in prison because he made up his mind to speak the truth to the highest powers in the country, and it cost him his freedom. Then Jesus said to him, if not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes and an effeminate man? That's the picture here? Did you go out to see someone who was in expensive clothes, indulging in luxury and in palaces? But what did you go out to see? And Jesus says, a prophet, a man's man, a truthful man who would sacrifice for the truth and give everything so that Christ would be known truly. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom is greater than John. Now, the text goes on to say this. It says, all the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' word, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. They were people who heard the baptism of repentance that John the Baptist preached, which is not very inclusive, right? It was a message that said, you need to acknowledge your sin and come to repentance and trust in the work of God, his grace to save you. That was the message that John preached. But the Pharisees, who are set in contrast to Jesus in this text, they are the, the name Pharisee literally means the separated ones, the right ones. So if you really wanted to know who was the exclusive person in the time of Christ, it would be the Pharisees. They were the ones that prided themselves on law keeping, but hated everybody else. The Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purposes for themselves because they would not be baptized by John. Why? Because the baptism of John was a baptism that required a repentance and faith in God's provision. And for a Pharisee to repent would be to admit something that they didn't want to admit, that they were sinners in need of a Savior. And John preached that message to him, and so did Jesus, right? You study through the Gospels. Now listen to what it says. Jesus went on to say, to what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? He says, they are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other. Now, if you want just a quick picture of this, they're like kids playing games. Okay, it's an illustration. Now, I remember when our kids were younger and one of the girls wanted to play house and the other wanted to play doctor. Okay, and one was you know, doing the things that doctors do, and the other one won't cooperate, then Erica would say, hey, Dad, Becca won't play the game with me. Okay, I'm doing all the right stuff as doctor, but she won't be the patient. I said, Erica, that's because of what you did to her last time you were the doctor, okay? <laughs> but you understand, it's, so what is Jesus saying about the, and, and then he says, so in the, in the marketplace, we played this song, and you wouldn't dance the way you're supposed to dance when we play that song. You're not cooperating with us. So what are the Pharisees? They're brats. They're just bratish people. 
John came and played the song of repentance. What was the response of the Pharisees? Do away with him. Jesus came playing the song of loving sinners and changing lives. Folks, listen. The, the, The Pharisees never questioned the miracles of Christ. They never argued about whether it really happened. Do you understand that? They just hated the fact that he was inclusive in his love. And sometimes we don't want to live with that kind of sediment against us. And if we don't, we can't be like Christ. There's a lot more you can say from this text. But the thing I want to say about John the Baptist is this. He was rejected by the in crowd. But approved by the ultimate crowd. And that's the tension we have to be willing to live with. Are you willing to live with temporary rejection? Because you speak the truth. So that you might have ultimate acceptance. Don't answer that question right now. Okay? I want to ask you to think about that. Because it will require a shift in your life. So it's easy for us. Oh, yeah, sure. Well, think about the cost. Count the cost. And then make the commitment. Verse 33, it says, John the Baptist came neither eating bread or drinking wine. And what did they say? He's demonic. Does that measure up with John's life? No, it doesn't. But what did they hate? They hated his message of truth. Instead of yielding to it and becoming accepted by God, what did they want? They wanted the approval of men, so they rejected John. And perhaps may have had something to do with his being put in jail anyhow. Because the Pharisees were the power brokers of the day, along with the political establishment. Jesus then says this, The Son of Man, the ultimate insider, came eating and drinking, and you say, he's a glutton and a drunkard. Why? Because he went and ate with people who had pretty bad reputations. True. True. But he is an inclusive Savior who is a truth-speaking Savior. Do you understand? Why did they call him a drunkard and a glutton? Because I hung out with people that were. It was guilt by what? Association. So here's the question for you and for me. Do I avoid hanging out with certain people because I want a clean reputation? Do you understand? Sometimes we're posturing ourselves in relationships for our appearance. And Jesus would have nothing to do with such a hypocritical life. What's Jesus saying? They call me a glutton and a drunkard, but you know the truth. They called him a friend of sinners. You know what Jesus says? True. True. That's why I love singing that song. Jesus, what a friend for sinners. Lover of my soul. I know my soul. What I would confess is he loves me. He loves everyone who repents and trusts in him. Jesus says, and I love this. He says, they say he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Tax collectors, just who's the worst of the worst? Tax collectors. They just, they are the ultimate jerks. They are the ultimate sinners. They're the, if you don't want your reputation tied with someone bad, don't ever tie it with a tax collector. I don't even know who to compare it to today. Okay? Definitely not to the tax collectors of our day. Okay, not that I love paying my taxes. Okay? But 
They're not known as like, ooh. But whoever the ooh is in your life that you're avoiding, Jesus didn't avoid them. He pursued them. Whether it was a centurion or a widow with her stigmatized life in the ancient world, or tax collectors and sinners, Jesus pursued them. How does the chapter end? The chapter ends with the story that you know, a Pharisee named Simon. He invites Jesus to come to his house. I don't have time to read through the whole story. He invites Jesus. Jesus comes and Jesus is sitting there. Simon doesn't wash his feet or welcome him because it's probably a setup anyhow. But Jesus isn't afraid of setups because he's not about protecting his reputation. He's about fulfilling a mission. And if fulfilling the mission means trashing his reputation in order that someone would experience the love of God, you know what Jesus would do? He would trash his reputation. So as Jesus is at the meal, a woman comes in. She is... Her, her name is a sinner. There is no name. She's just a sinner. She's the one that when she walks in, everybody looks at each other and says, can you believe she's here? What is she doing here, Simon? She goes over to the feet of Jesus, starts to weep. You know what the Pharisees expected? He's going to brush her off. He's going to brush her off. She unties her hair. She breaks a vial of perfume, starts pouring it over the feet of Christ, tears streaming down to wash his feet. And they're waiting for him to brush her off. And Simon says to himself, he, you know, he's the embarrassed host now, right? Because if you brought people into your house in the book of Luke, you are including them in your life. Now, Simon wants to exclude Jesus. So in his mind, he has a dialogue. He's saying, good night. If he knew, if he knew what kind of woman that was, he... He can't be a prophet. He can't be a representative of God. Because representatives of God wouldn't tolerate such affection and brokenness. Wrong. And Jesus reads Simon's mind, which Simon was not prepared for. And he says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And Simon's thinking, all right, go ahead. Acting like you are. I hope you have something to say for yourself. And he reads his mind. He says, Simon, I came in. You did nothing. You didn't even give the normal greeting for a guest in this setting. You didn't wash my feet. This woman has not stopped shedding tears to wash my feet. So he says, so Simon, here's a story for you. One man owes 10 denarii. Another man owes 50. The owner calls both of them in in their distress and says, you know what? Both of you are forgiven. Both of you, you're both forgiven, but you're both debtors. So you see the parallel of the story. Because now the story is about Simon and this woman. And Jesus says to Simon, hey, Simon, by the way, in front of everybody there, which one would be more grateful for the forgiveness that they have received? The one who had 10 denarii in debt or the one who had 50? Which one? You know what Simon says? He says, well, I suppose because he knows he's in a gotcha. Because the inclusive love of Christ has just devastated his religious world and proven it for what it is. It's a club that reflects nothing of the heart of God who came to seek and to save that which is lost. And he rips the mask right off the Simon. Well, you say, well, that's kind of rude. I mean, don't you think Jesus is being a little rough? 
But sometimes, sometimes the truth can be rough. Because here's what happens. The gospel that includes sinners always wounds them before it heals them. The gospel that heals you will always sting you before it sings to you. Always. And that wounding, I think, Clyde, of your wife, okay, to get your heart fixed, guess what you got to do? You're talking heart valve, you got to go through a wound to get to healing. You got to say, you know what, that's what I need. And you got to choose that very, very difficult pain that your wife is in right now in order to get the result that you guys are glad you got. That's the way the gospel works. You know what Simon refused? Simon refused to be wounded. The Pharisees that listened to John the Baptist refused to be wounded by the truth. Herod that put John in jail refused to be wounded by the truth that he was an adulterer with his brother's wife. And so what they did, they excluded all these good people. And what did Jesus do? Jesus included them. He said, John, blessed is the one who doesn't fall away. To the widow, you've got your son back. Trust me. To the centurion, I know you can barely look at me because of your sin. But trust me and I'll forgive you. And Jesus says to Simon, Simon, get the gospel that this woman got. If she's a sinner, and so are you. Jesus is an inclusive Savior. So these quick thoughts to apply this text to your life. Number one, Jesus pursued all kinds of people. That's what Jesus did. Do I? Secondly, and I'll say this, religion that drives people away from God is just that. It's religion. It doesn't change lives. It doesn't help. Jesus' pursuit of all kinds of people was intentional. Now, I'm gonna, I used to say it this way. I used to ask you this question. I would ask you, challenge you to think about how, much, how many portions of your life, how much time in your life is set aside to help others? I'm going to change the question this morning. Because I thought about Frank Robinson. I thought, he didn't set aside portions of his life to love others. It was his life. And it was the life of Jesus, wasn't it? Jesus who said to his disciples, I am among you. you know, the, well, here's what he said. He said, the rulers of this world, they love to lord it over people and get them to serve them. But he said, I, the ultimate insider, am, am among you as an outsider. I've become a servant. I will be ultimately excluded from my own father for your inclusion. I am among you as one who serves. And the service of Jesus to you and to me for our salvation through the cross cost him everything. It cost him exclusion for your inclusion. Do you understand? He became what you are. He became an outsider. He died outside the camp so that you could be an insider inside the camp. So folks, listen, how dare I, as a forgiven sinner, exclude people because of their sinfulness? How dare I? Do you understand? Just let it, let it settle. Do it as you go. Do it like the guy that touched my mom's life. And you may start something that you never imagined. The touch of God in someone's life that goes to their husband, that goes to their aunt and uncle, that I can count today about 80 people who came to Christ in my family 
because the man didn't carve out blocks of time to serve Christ. He served Christ all the time. I am thankful for that. He thought everybody should be in. Jesus' pursuit of outsiders was legendary. It was his reputation, wasn't it? It's what he was known for. Most of us don't want that stigma. You can't be like Jesus if you avoid that stigma. Last thought is this. The pursuit of Christ, of outsiders, was gospel-driven. It was never service for the sake of service. It was always service for the sake of the gospel. Always. Which, which means two things. It means this. It means genuine Christian service must have as its aim the aim of Jesus, the founder of Christianity. It was not just about relieving physical needs, hunger, clothing, healing, etc., and all things which are fine. But if you conclude that that alone is how you can best represent him, you have a downsized Jesus. He's abridged. Does that make sense? It's not all that Jesus did. He said, I came to seek and to save that which is lost. He did it by ultimate sacrifice and service. But he did it for their eternal benefit. Which leads me to this conclusion. That gospel-driven ministry will always be concerned about the real needs people have and face. Meaning, you can't live your life not helping people and call yourself a follower of Jesus. Can't. Can't. Now, I can take the label Christian. But if I don't live like Jesus, it's just that. It's like me wearing a sweatshirt for Cedarville University where my daughter went to college. Or like all the dads I see at Dunkin' Donuts over in Easton who wear their Lafayette and Lehigh shirts. Because it says something. I don't see a lot of dads with the, you know, the school I went to on their shirt seeking reputation. Don't see it. Folks, get this text. Jesus was the friend of sinners. Let him alter your life starting today. Starting when you go to the coffee shop, which is what all Christians should do. Okay, let God. Let God open doors in the, in the ins and outs of your life. Let him transform every interaction into an opportunity to spread the inclusive, exclusive gospel with people. May we be known first for being inclusive while we proclaim that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life who bore hell for you on the cross so that you can be forgiven of your sin. And yes, he is the only way. And if me saying that puts me on the outside with you, then I have to live with that. I would rather be on the outside with Jesus than inside with you. But he loves you. And as Tim said this morning, if you seek him, you'll find him when you seek with all your heart because he always will respond to a seeking heart. So as the church, may we go and be an inclusive church that never compromises truth, that is devoted to being like Jesus and like John the Baptist and like the early church. And we go out and we begin to be people that make a difference in our world for the glory of God. Father, help us.